0: So Father's Day. Oh, man. On Father's Day and Mother's Day, I like to do um, something really related because it is so helpful for us to try to get our arms around these central roles in our lives. You know, from ancient times, the, the family was the unit, only it was an extended family. You know, the, the mishpacha of, of the Hebrews wasn't just the nuclear family as we understand family, but it was the Extended family, kind of like Ohana in in uh, in Hawaiian, you know, the fact that there was no word for cousin in Aramaic uh, or Hebrew kind of tells the whole story. Everybody was a brother or a sister of the patriarch and the matriarch, and so to really understand these roles is important. And on Mother's Day we talked about the roles from a Hebrew perspective. Today I, I want to kind of jump off from that point and and take it in a different direction a little bit, but. Have you ever stopped to consider how central the role of father is to our development as children and as young adults? The relationship that we had with our, with our father, to a very great extent, helps determine the way that we look at life, the way that we look at our place in the world, the way we look at relationships. The way that we look at our ability to succeed, our ability to compete in the world has so much to do with our father's influence. I remember you know, I've been thinking a lot about my father for some reason over the last week. You know, I guess with Father's Day approaching and everything, he's he's been dead now seventeen years. I think we can probably cue the rain there, buddy. John. <laughs> I hear thunder and rain going on. And I'm adopted. And so, you know, we have all these different types of relationships with, with fathers. Some of you, and most of you probably were raised by your biological parents. Some of you, like me, were adopted. Some of you maybe came up in the foster system. Maybe you had other relatives that were raising you, but somebody, some male was in a position. Maybe it was even a teacher or someone that you related to in that role. And it's so important. Now, for me, my father was kind of the, uh, the silent, stoic type. You know, he was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Yes, there is a Pittsburgh, Kansas. I had no idea until uh, my dad finally told me where he was born. But he was raised in Omaha, and he was a child of the Depression in the Middle West of the Middle West. I mean, you can't get more stoic. You can't get more conservative. You can't just get more strong and silent, I suppose, than that. And he had all those qualities growing up. I knew he loved me, but I can honestly say I didn't know my father. He didn't share much. He didn't talk about himself ever. You know, There were so many things about him that I didn't find out either until after his mother died or after he died and, and certain papers surfaced. I remember when his, his mother died, and I was still pretty young, probably eight or nine, and a box came from Nebraska with all this stuff that she had collected of my dad's, and there were newspaper clippings in there of him winning these awards for building model airplanes from scratch, drawing his own plans, cutting all the pieces. And these planes had leather upholstered seats and working electrical lights inside. I mean, I'm looking at this and like, who is this guy? (laughs) You know, he's just the guy who hangs around the house and and, uh, he was so capable. He could do anything and build anything. But I had no idea he had these kinds of skills. And when I was making my little plastic models, and he'd just kind of go by and and sniff, and it's like, well, now I understood. But it's like we never connected at that level. We never did those kind of things together. When I was, uh, after I graduated from high school, I started working uh, downtown L.A., and my dad worked downtown L.A., so we would drive in together, and then I'd get a ride home. But at that point, I was already checked out. And I can remember so many times now driving in that route from Monterey Park to Los Angeles where my dad tried to start a conversation, and I was just too tired, and I didn't want anything to do with it. And I'd give him that one-word answer that my 20-year-old gives me now, you know, karma. And I didn't have those conversations with him. 17 years ago, when we moved my parents in with us, Marion and I, because my dad's Alzheimer's had gotten so bad, Um, that he couldn't live alone anymore, they couldn't live alone, then I was unable to have a conversation with him because he had lost the ability to speak. And I remember all those times that I wasted not having conversations with him when he wanted to have them with me. And, you know, that's the kind of dance that we sometimes do. But my father was a wonderful provider. He was always there for us. He was always this as the Jews would say, you know, the pillar of the strong house. And yet I didn't know him. I didn't know who he was. And we didn't have that kind of connection. And the Hebrew roles are just that. Ab, father, Aleph, bet, means strong house. And so to the Jew... The father was supposed to be the strength of the house, the one that gave the shape, the one that gave that umbrella, that that was the accomplisher and the doer and the judge and the king and the jury and the executor and the executioner and all those things, the administrator. That was the the strength of the house. That was the father's role. And then mother, M, strong water, which alluded to that when they would tan their animal hides and boil them, that 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 sticky, thick Liquid that would come to the top that they would skim off and use as an adhesive was what they understood that the the mother was the glue that holds the family together. And so you have the strong house and you have the strong water, the one who gives the strength and the one that gives the connection and the relationship. So mother was seen as mercy and compassion, as wisdom, as relationship, as unconditional love, whereas the father was the one who was striving and making things happen. And now you can see that those two things are not mutually exclusive. Never an understanding of either or, but always of both and. In Hebrew thinking, it's always both and. The two things coming together. Each one of us should be striving to be the balance, that perfect balance of ab and em, of mother and Father of accomplishment and relationship, of doing and being. Those things bringing together, pulling ourselves to center is what Jesus calls living in kingdom with the awareness of all those qualities, those multiple things functioning as one thing. It's supposed to work that way in the family and it's supposed to work that way within our own spirits. And this is what Jesus is trying to bring across. This is what... Jewish thought and just the words themselves are trying to bring across. But the image of God as Ab, as father, far outshadows his image as Em, as mother. Both within Jewish culture of the time and also our culture here, 2,000 years of received Christianity, has reinforced the fact that the Bible never refers to God as mother, never refers to God as M. Now, wisdom is personified as feminine, and there are all other allusions to this balance, but God has never called that. He's always referred to in the masculine, and we have taken that and run with that for 2,000 years. And since the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, we've solidified it intellectually that God is a strong male presence But that means that if we only see God as Father, that we may understand that He loves us, but we won't know Him. We won't have conversed with Him. We won't have spent the kind of quality time that allows us to see God's M side, His mother's side, to see the kind of love that the mother exemplifies and so our view of God and our resulting spirituality, our walk, are unbalanced. We're looking at things always from the, from the point of view of accomplishment. There's things we need to do. There's laws we need to keep. There's standards we need to hit in order to be approved. And we're missing the whole point that God loves like a mother. Heard about a face only a mother could love? We all have that face, you see. And God loves us anyway, but we won't know that if we're only approaching God as Father. There is this balance that needs to take place. Now Jesus had an ingenious solution to this whole problem, and it's amazing because we, we talked about this before. Jesus is sometimes portrayed as a social revolutionary. You know that he was trying to change the social structure of first-century Judaism. He was also trying to change the power structure. You know, He was the Messiah who was going to kick the Romans out and establish this new, this new kingdom. He was going to change the social structure so that women and children had their place. And he was trying to make all these changes to the culture from a top-down position. But if you really analyze what Jesus was doing, analyze what he was saying, and look at his actions when power was offered to him, how he always pushed it away and moved in a different direction, you realize Jesus was not a social revolutionary. He was revolutionary, but he wasn't trying to change his culture from the top down. He was trying to change individuals from the inside out, which would, if he turned enough heartlights on, change the culture, of course. But that was secondary to his purpose. What Jesus actually did was spend enough time with his father to see his face to see his face as mother as well as father and bring the two together. He never called his father mother. He never called God mother. He called him Abba, which was this perfectly wonderful word. In Aramaic, it is. it can literally mean beloved, but it is the familiar, it is the intimate form of father. Abba. Abba, it's what children call their daddy, Abba. They call their mom, Ima, mommy, Ima, Abba. He calls him Abba. It's the perfect bridge. It's the perfect balance between father and mother to say, okay, you're still father, but you're the daddy into whose lap I can crawl, into whose shoulder I can bury my face when I'm having one of those days who is always going to be there for me, who will always have the time for a conversation, for a connection. Not just the king, not just the judge, not just the executor and the administrator, but this other connection, Abba. The perfect spot right in the middle. Abba balances, Abba bridges. Jesus had moved in his own life from a formal liturgical relationship with God to Abba when did that happen we have this wonderful story about the 40 days that he spent in the desert a long time not just 40 symbolic days but it means a trial a time of trial and testing into her birth 18 unaccounted for years in Jesus life it was a long time of him working toward wrestling with the scripture says that he was exhausted to the point of death he was starved he pushes himself to this place where he finally strips everything away that was keeping him from seeing the true nature of his Abba. And when he comes back to community, when he comes back to his birthplace, comes back to his people, this is the message that he has for them, and he calls it good news. I've seen my Father's face. I now am my Father's face. The Father and I are one. And you can see it too. In me, in him, this is what he's trying to do. But it's indicated through a struggle. It's indicated through this wrestling. But Jesus is showing us the shape of the journey. If our question is and should be, how am I going to do this? How am I going to see God's face? How am I going to move from Ab to Abba in my own life? Then you look at Jesus and say, okay, there's the shape of the journey. This is what it looks like. But there are many others within scripture too. And this morning I want to take a look at three very quickly so we can try to solidify in our own minds what this journey looks like if we really want to move from Ab to Abba in our own lives. Not just intellectually, but emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, in every other way. I don't know if you all know the story of Jacob. Jacob was the second twin of Isaac and Rebekah we got two twins here, so they know what we're talking about when it comes to twins. All right? So Esau was the, was the brother of Jacob. In the womb, they were constantly fighting. They made their mother sick during pregnancy, the, the scripture tells us. She was ill during her pregnancy because they were always fighting and contending. And when it came time for childbirth, Esau comes out first. But as soon as he is delivered, there is Jacob holding on to his heel and being pulled out at the same time. And Jacob was named Yaakov in Hebrew, which means heel catcher. But figuratively, it means schemer. It means trickster. It means supplanter. It means the one who comes and takes the place of Yaakov. And that is exactly the character of Jacob for almost his entire life. You probably know the story. Since Esau was the first, he was the firstborn. He was to be given the blessing by his father. And when his father passed, then he was going to get twice the amount of holdings and the ability to oversee the land, become the new patriarch before any of the other children. But Jacob wanted that spot. He wanted that position. And his mom, Rebecca, who favored Jacob, was helping him in all of this. And so they cook up this scheme to steal the birthright of Esau. And when Esau is out hunting, and his father is waiting for him to bring back the the kill and the the dish that he was uh, familiar with eating from his son, his mother uh, and Jacob they work together and prepare a different meal and since Esau was a man of the field, and he was hairy and big and rough and all those things, and Jacob was the soft man of the tents and the man who is the intellectual. They cover his arms and his neck with the skins of the kids, that they, uh, the, the uh, goats that they had killed for the, for the meal, and so his father, who is now blind, can't tell the difference. He suspects something's off but Jacob assures him that he really is his son Esau and he gets the blessing. And when Esau comes back and the lie is discovered, of course Esau is furious and vows vengeance on his brother. And so Jacob flees. He flees north from Canaan into Haran, which would be just across the border of Syria into southern southeastern Turkey today. And he goes there to his his uncle's house, Lavan, And he lives there for 20 years. And there he marries Rachel. He loves Rachel, but he ends up getting tricked into marrying Leah, her sister. Anyway, he has 11 sons up there and a daughter through the two wives that he has and their two maidservants. And after 20 years, he realizes that he's been called back to come to his homeland, back to Canaan, but he's afraid of what Esau is going to do because Esau has become a patriarch in his own right and commands many clans and... and, and, uh, warriors and so on and so forth but he packs all his his belongings up he packs his clan which is now hundreds of people thousands of head of livestock and he heads down the Jordan Valley toward Canaan and he gets to a tributary a river called Yabok which is a tributary of the Jordan and he camps on the north side and he's trying to figure out what to do. He sends messengers across to Esau, finds out that he's traveling with 400 warriors. And of course, he's even more worried now. So he divides his camp into two clans. And he reasons that if one is attacked, the other can escape. He takes all of his livestock and divides it into groups. And he sends them across with messengers across the river as gifts, you know, as, as, as uh, offerings to Esau. And he tells the messenger every time when you see Esau, tell him, you know, his brother is behind, but here is a gift for you. And so one by one, these groups of livestock are offered to Esau. And then he sends the first half of his camp over. And then he sends the second half of his camp over. And then all that's left are his wives and his sons. And after a a short blessing on the north side of the river, he sends them across. And then he's left all alone on the north bank of the Yobok, wrestling with God, praying for deliverance, still scheming, still trying to make things work, doing everything that he did. And this is where we can pick up the story here at Genesis 32:22. Now he arose, Jacob arose that same night, and he took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When you see these kinds of theophanies, especially in the Old Testament, sometimes the person is presented as a man, sometimes as an angel, and sometimes as God himself. But the understanding in Hebrew is that all these terms are interchangeable. God presents as the angel, the messenger. They also present sometimes as a man. But the understanding here is that God appears to Jacob, And Jacob wrestles with him. And when he saw, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel." For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over the Peniel and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. What is going on here? He's alone at night. He's praying for deliverance. He's having, having done everything that he could do, everything that he could think of. Every trick in the book, he's played his hand and there's nothing left and everyone is gone and it's just him alone. And then he wrestles and he prays, all night long with his God. And by daybreak, he finally has a breakthrough. By daybreak, he finally gets to the point where he is at the complete end of himself. He has this vision of his own powerlessness over the situation, over what he's trying to accomplish And he finally comes to the place of vulnerability. He finally comes to the place where the schemer can no longer stand on his own power, but has to cling to and hold on to the man who finally says, stop clinging. The day is about to break. We have to move on from here. And then one last attempt at control. Right. Jacob, tell me your name. Right. In Israel culture, to name something was to show dominion over it. Why Adam could show dominion over all of the animals and everything in the garden by being allowed to name them. To know the name was also power. But he doesn't get the name, does he? But he does get the blessing. What happened here was that Jacob was finally ready to let go of trying to be in control, at least for a moment, and cling to and hold on to a power greater than himself. And then his name is changed from Jacob, the trickster, the schemer, to Israel, which is one who prevailed with, rules with, strives with, struggles with God, is what that name means. And the interesting thing is, through the rest of Genesis now, another 30 chapters, Jacob is interchangeably referred to by both names. Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel. Which shows that alternation, which shows that oscillation, which shows that he is still moving from the place of dependency and vulnerability over to a place where he's trying to exert control and become the schemer again. Back and forth, back and forth. The shape of the journey, wrestling with God, breaking through to this place where we finally realize all we can do as human beings is cling on to the power of that is greater than ourselves, to hold on, to allow ourselves to be those dependents. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Take a look at Moses. Moses' life is divided into three sets of 40. Again, every time you see see the number 40, it's a time of trial and testing into a time of rebirth. And so the first 40 years of Jesus' life as a prince of Israel, the second 40... In the backwater of the Midian, as a shepherd, working for his father-in-law, Jethro. But it's in that second 40 years where Moses begins to change his consciousness. I guess 40 years in the desert will do that to you. Not a whole heck of a lot to do. Leading the sheep around in, in the wilderness, finding a place for them to eat. He comes across the burning bush It's not that a burning bush was such a unique event because creosote bushes in the desert do spontaneously combust. But he had gotten himself to a place of sufficient consciousness where he noticed things. He stopped and looked at things. And he noticed that although this bush was burning, it was not being consumed, something was different about this. And he had to go and take a closer look. And he realized that this was holy ground and he takes off his shoes But what does he do there at the burning bush with his God? He argues with him. (laughs) He contends with him. He doesn't want to do the thing that the bush is calling him to do, that the God of the bush is calling him to do. And he's wrestling and he's working through it. And you see this. And yet Moses continues to move forward. He continues in a type of relationship with God which is deeper. Take a look at Exodus 33, verse 8. And it came about, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. This is after the exodus from Egypt. They're now in the wilderness, and the tent of meeting has been constructed. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent... All the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. That consciousness that he had developed in the second 40 years carries over into the third 40 years of where he is leading the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. But even though it is characterized here as face to face, Moses still has not seen God's face. He has not seen Peniel, the face of God, directly because just seven verses later, at verse 18, Moses says to God, I pray you show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is a beautiful image Of a loving mother isn't it shielding the child taking care of the child lovingly acquiescing to the request of the child as much as it can be acquiesced to but taking care and guiding and shaping and showing the love that God has it's intimate it's connected yet it's still mysterious there are parts that cannot be known or understood. There's still this wrestling. You see Jacob working it out. You see Moses working it out as he goes. And those of you who know the story, there's always a contention throughout that last 40 years of Moses' life. Working it out with God. And then there's Philip in the New Testament at John 14, 8. Philip says to Jesus, this is right as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. This is in, during Holy Week. And Jesus told them, I'm going away and you can't go where I'm going. And everybody's freaking out, all of his followers. And Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He wants to see the Father's face. He's been traveling with Jesus for years now, wrestling with everything that he said, Still trying to understand Jesus from his own perspective, from his own needs, from his own desires, from his own hopes. Wondering, is Jesus going to bring about this new kingdom in which the Romans are gone and I can establish some sort of political power myself? What is going on here? And now he's leaving and leaving things so undone? Show us the Father. Give me something to hold on to. Wrestling with this idea. Not understanding that Jesus has already seen the Father's face, become the Father's face. Jesus has become Peniel himself, the face of God. To look on Jesus, to understand what it is that he is doing, to live it yourself, to begin the first steps toward living what Jesus is living in the Father, is to see the Father's face. To move from Ab an understood God, to Abba, a known God, a God that we have experienced in our own lives. Jesus saw the Father's face wrestling in the wilderness with him. He saw the Father, and he found his own identity in that oneness with Father. As he found Abba, he found himself, and he expresses it just this way. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We are one. I don't do anything on my own initiative because I have found Abba. And for us, it's the same. The search for Abba, the search for the Father's face, is a search for our own identity. It's a search for ourselves. There is no way that we can know who we are until we know who the Father is, to know this relationship between us and ultimate reality, to know this relationship between us and our Creator, the Creator of everything. What does it mean for us to say we have an identity that is free-floating, that is divorced from everything that is? It's meaningless. It's just a voice in our heads. And it will pass. And when it does, it will take our identity with us, which will create another midlife crisis for us along the way. But for us to sink our roots deep right into the source of the Father's face, his essence, who he is, changes everything. What is that relationship? What is that nature of God? How can we know what it is we're looking for? Well, Jesus tells us flat out, But this is something that can't be transferred or told to us. But at least we have an image, we have a picture. When Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son, and I think most of you know the story, what he's really talking about is the face of the prodigal father. Prodigal means a lavish spender, an extravagant or wasteful spendthrift, wastefully just frittering away, all of the resources. That's what prodigal means. And of course, that's what the son did in the faraway land when he gets his inheritance early from his father at his request. But when he returns, when he finally comes to his senses, spends all the money that he has, is living in the pigsty, eating the husks that the pigs eat, realizing that even his father's servants are eaten better than that. And he comes back, not to be reestablished as son, but simply as a hired hand. The instant his father sees him come up the rise into his land, he bolts out of the house, bolts out on the road, running to meet his son, embracing him, covering him with kisses. He can't stop kissing him is the sense of the language and then immediately orders that the calf is killed and the party begins, lavishly spending everything that he's got on this son who deserves none of it. This is the story of the prodigal father. Jesus is giving us an image, a picture, of who this father is. Our view of God as Ab is so poor, it's so scarce, compared to the lavish abundance and extravagance that Jesus paints of his Abba. And until we can make that journey ourselves from Ab to Abba, from scarcity to abundance, from conditional love to an absolute, just pouring out, an overwhelming abundance of love the way a mother loves, we will never be able to get where Jesus is trying to show us we can go if we so wish. It sounds crazy, I know. And we've resisted this so much. And we continue to resist it. We resist it theologically. We resist it culturally. We resist it psychologically. Because it just sounds too good to be true, and therefore it must be. But if we persist, if we keep moving layer by layer, the old lies, the old paradigms will fall away and more and more we will be able to see what Jesus saw and connect as Jesus connected, which is exactly what he said we could do. But it comes off over time. It comes off in layers and it looks like wrestling with God all night long until the day breaks. And what does that really look like in our lives, though? What does this wrestling look like? It looks like life. It looks like living life, but not shrinking from life. Letting life be what it is. Living life with presence and awareness. Willing to doubt. Willing to take our faith to the edge where it's not comfortable anymore. Where we start to wonder if there really is anything there. The willingness to doubt. The willingness to push ahead. To take risks. To immerse ourselves in life, fully, with no guarantee, regardless of what we may be feeling at the time. It's the willingness to fall in love, to become that vulnerable, that open. It's the willingness to say, I love you first, with no guarantee that it's going to be said back to you. The willingness to get hurt, but at the same time to stay open, to stay vulnerable to the next relationship and the one after that, and the one after that. It's not accepting the beliefs of others as you've had it received from teachers or from churches or from whole schools of thought, but to take what you believe from third person or second person all the way to first person, to experience for yourself, to dive into your own experience and find out what is really true and what you are truly convinced of. It's remaining grateful even in the midst of great difficulty. Grateful for every breath and everything that you have. And even for the difficulty itself. Because it is teaching something. Taking us where we need to go. Staying present even in the midst of pain. Because it's through the pain that we get to the greater understanding on the other side. Finally, it's becoming a prodigal mother or father ourselves. Becoming the kind of person who can give with that sort of extravagance. Who doesn't hold on, cling to, or dam up resources, but can let them flow because you've seen the Father's face and you know that the flow will never stop. Regardless of what life seems to look like, you know that you know that you know that you are free to give with this abandon because you are being given to with the same abandon and the flow will continue. This is what the wrestling looks like, and this is why it is so difficult. It takes someone who is willing to risk something first with no guarantee to find out whether what Jesus says is actually true. What Jacob found out, what Moses found out, what Philip finally found out at Pentecost was actually true, that this is the face of the God that we serve. And so this Father's Day, I wanted to close with just a little bit of an article that I ran across a few years ago that I just think captures the notion of Father's Day so perfectly. Written by John Cass of the Chicago Trib. What are we going to do on Father's Day? Burn some meat? Put on the new polo shirt? Say thank you for the cologne you'll never wear? Yeah, somebody picked the day. It doesn't really matter who picked it. If you're a dad, you know the exact date. It's the day your kids were born, the day your flesh came into the world to confront you. If you're not a dad, you can't understand it. Not really. Before becoming a father, I thought it was possible to understand, but reason alone doesn't work. Perhaps it happened in a room of balloons and flowers with grandparents and siblings all around, your wife smiling, tired, video cameras working or perhaps you were in the hospital chapel at night bargaining against bad news. However it turned out for you, it was the day God bended and formed you like a link in a chain, connecting you to the generations behind you and the generations hopefully to come. It is the day men stop floating and become rooted in the earth, joined to it, knowing their place in it waits for them because something of them will continue on. A baby's eyes are so big a few minutes after he arrives, so wide, and I was terribly frightened of the stare. I knew the twins couldn't really see me just then, that all they were processing was light and shadow and wonder, but it was frightening all the same. Their eyes demanded accountability. Now they're six-footers with chin-beards, Using that body wash, that advertised promise will attract all the gorgeous supermodels. (laughs) They're good kids. But when they were little, people would tell me that they'd soon become teenagers someday. And it actually happened. Sometimes they tell their mother and me that we just don't understand things. We don't understand what life is like. And we agree and tell them to take out the garbage anyway and wonder what they'll look like when they're fathers and don't understand what life is like either. This is it. Directed at fathers, but of course mothers as well. Are we willing to look into the eyes of that accountability? Are we willing to become rooted in the earth and stop floating? Are we willing to immerse ourselves in a life that we know is going to bring us pain? In a love that we know is going to break our hearts sometime down the road and yet fully invest and fully involve and wrestle with our God until we have lived long enough and wrestled enough that we finally let go of all the things we thought we knew and all the schemes that we thought were going to save our lives so that we can see Peniel, we can see the face of our God and know how good that news is. Let's pray. Father, it is your face that we want to see. Help us to continue to live and breathe, but with much more abandon, with much more immersion, with a sense of meaning and purpose behind every choice we make and every heartbreak we suffer, knowing that everything is taking us toward The unveiling of your face. Help us to begin to see life that way, every moment that way, so that we can be grateful for everything that does occur. So that we can know that everything is leading us inevitably to you, if that's what we desire. And help us to desire it more and more, to take our pleasure where you take your pleasure, so there is no wasted time. Father, thank you for all the tools for everything that you have given us to make this journey possible. We want with everything in us to call you Abba and to know exactly what that means. To know how we can love and trust and relate with you. Thank you for loving us as you do, Lord. Never let us forget we can only love at all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Happy Father's Day. Let's stand.